You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 19. Motiveless Malignity. Hello and welcome to Denver Orbit, an award-winning audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Josh Madison. Before we get started, thanks to everyone who came out to the live show at MCA Denver a couple of weeks ago. It was a blast. And thanks also to Kelly Shortenqueer, Carl Christian Crumpholes, Bonnie Weimer, Mary McHugh, and all of our performers for coming up on stage and doing their thing. We are going to have another live show in Fort Collins in May, featuring Fort Collins performers, so keep an eye on the Facebook page for that event. And while you're keeping an eye on things, plant one over on the Instagram page. There's nothing show-related there, it's just a garden of strange delights. Now let's get on with today's show. This one is a little different from our usual formula. This one is an audio documentary former co-host Ryan Connell and I put together a while back. It's an examination of our enduring fascination with serial killers and with their crimes. First, we talk to Professor Brad Mudge about just why the hell Jack the Ripper will never go away. And then we chatted with a friend of the show, Alessandra Ragusen, about viewing the phenomenon of serial murder through the lens of history and monster theory. So let's get started. Ryan and I got to talking about the most outlandish Jack the Ripper theory we could think of. All right, but which theory is your favorite? You mean not who we think the actual Jack the Ripper is, right? Just the theory that we like the best? Yeah, I think it's more fun that way. Well, um, I don't know. As a comic book fan, probably my favorite is the one Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell uh, wrote about in the graphic novel From Hell. In that story, Jack the Ripper is actually the physician William Gull. In a plot that only can be described as Byzantine, uh, Prince Albert Victor has impregnated and secretly married a commoner, Annie Crook. Queen Victoria finds out about this scandalous affair and has poor Annie Crook spirited away to an insane asylum. Annie's five friends, Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Mary Jane Kelly, and Catherine Eddowes find out about this and decide their best course of action is to blackmail the British crown with this information. So, the Queen contacts the Freemasons, who set the good doctor to the job of cleaning up this royal mess. Being a dedicated Freemason, William Gold decides to turn his task of murdering five women into an arcane Freemason ritual. He believes this ritual murder of these women is an act of magic meant to reinforce the rational masculine hegemony. Magic with a K, of course. Of course. The book is pretty much the exact opposite of Occam's Razor, where the simplest explanation is the most likely one. In this case, the most complicated uh, explanation is the one they put forward. But Alan Moore wasn't really trying to solve the case so much as use it as a means of exploring other themes. Uh, themes such as the patriarchy, poverty, class structure, the quantum theory of time, and of course, Alan Moore's interest in Gnostic mysticism and magic. So that's my favorite. How about you? You know, I also really go for the the complex conspiracy theories. And this one uh, is a new one that we just found out, but it comes from a supposed manuscript by none other than Rasputin. Oh, the mad monk himself. Yeah. Uh, great beard. Good, good killer instincts. Hmm. 
in this theory, Jack the Ripper is actually a mad Russian doctor named Alexander Pedachenko, a.k.a. Vasily Konovolov, a.k.a. Count Andrei Lusikovo. Now, this doctor is also an agent of the Okhrana, the secret police of Imperial Russia. The Russian crown believes that Scotland Yard has been too soft on anarchists, socialists, and dissidents. So along with two accomplices who act as lookouts, Pedachenko's secret mission is to kill five prostitutes. Uh, and the murders were meant to bring shame to the British crown, the Metropolitan Police, and destabilize the entire government. Now, how this was supposed to work, or what the end goal of that subterfuge was, is, well, uh, not explained. But of course, there are multiple reasons why this is an outlandish theory anyway. I mean, first of all, just Rasputin alone. Uh, but also that the main source is a London-based Russian journalist called Niederost, who was known for inventing sensational stories. The other, of course, is that Russians would never interfere with the workings of another country's government. Oh, no, no, no. They would never do such a thing. Yeah, it's yeah. outlandish. Now, of course, we are planning on me saying here that uh, my favorite is Aaron Kosminski. Right. And we were saying this because this is who we thought it actually was, and we could say who the real killer was. And, and there were DNA tests done, even, that proved it was him. But then the DNA test proved to be faulty. And we're back at square one, and nobody actually knows who Jack the Ripper really was. But wait, because I have the best theory of all. And it's going to sound a little crazy to you, but I think it's totally legit in its own way. Uh, it comes from the original series of Star Trek. Ooh, Star Trek theories. I like it. Yeah. But listen, in, in the show, Jack the Ripper is actually an alien being of pure energy that goes from planet to planet, possessing unsuspecting life forms and killing women. They think it's Scotty, but then it turns out to totally be the alien. Of course, they think it's Scotty, though. Whoops. And uh, But you think this is the best theory? Yes. Like, the, really, the, the, the best theory one the actual best theory because dig it it's revealed at the end of the episode that this alien creature doesn't feed off the bodies it's killing but it instead feeds off of fear and terror the killing is actually kind of incidental it was just a way to create the most panic because that's what the the monster it actually needs to live there was even this totally sexist scene where spock says that the ripper targets women because they scare more easily yeah Okay. <laughs> so while I'm not saying that the alien was actually Jack the Ripper or that Jack the Ripper is an alien made of pure energy. Well, kind of we're all beings of pure energy. Right? Yeah, like, okay, so we're kind of all <laughs> beings of pure energy. But what I'm saying is that Jack the Ripper wasn't purely human. Uh, Jack the Ripper and every other serial killer that we can think of, they're more than just murderers. I mean, people get murdered all the time. Right, and we don't really pay that much attention to them. Right, but serial killers are different. They stir up something different within us. They feed off of that fear and terror. Right, right. And that's why we look at serial killers differently. And you know what? That's what we're going to explore a little bit more. Uh, so a basic question I think we need to ask is, why are we still talking about Jack the Ripper anyway? Uh, he killed, what, five people? maybe a few more, and well over 100 years ago. Yeah, I've always wondered that too. I mean, there is the entirety of the 20th century and all of the different huge historical events between then and now. I mean, almost 1,100 people die every year from choking on chewing gum alone. Whoa. I just looked that up. <laughs> right, but that begs the question, why do these particular questions get elevated to such cultural significance? Or, or more so, why do we get obsessed with these crimes and these killers? What is the attraction um, for what we would call a crime of multiplication? 
Um, in other words, uh, if we're looking at the history of crime 100 years earlier, 200 years earlier, 300 years earlier, um, what is it that captivates the public and the media in at the latter part of the 19th century? Um, and one factor certainly um, is the rise of uh, uh, media and newspapers and the reaching out. So the sensationalization of the crime itself, um, certainly. But then a crime that is itself structured in terms of multiplication. Uh, so what is, what is it not? It's not a crime of um, specific revenge. Um, it's not a crime that emerges out of um, injustice that we know of. Wait, what does he mean by crimes of multiplication? In this context, he's saying serial murder introduces a numerical factor. It takes a crime of passion or intimacy and turns it into spectacle with each crime outdoing the other, which of course we still see today. All right, second question. Who is that? My name is Bradford Mudge and I teach um, 18th and 19th century English literature at the University of Colorado. We invited Brad on to see if he could help shed some light on our enduring fascination with Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper crimes seem to sit at the convergence of a lot of different factors, the availability of cheap newsprint, the rise of the media, and our own changing views of crime and punishment. So where do we put these crimes? How do we define them? Couldn't you say that the crime actually positions itself on the fault line between the knowable and the unknowable? To have a seemingly random series of events pose for the other side, the reading public, but also law enforcement, pose a problem of the unknowable and the inexplicable versus the sort of knowable and the explainable. So if you, you know, you read, if you look at a current episode of CSI, um, what we find is a, uh, apparently random act, um, that once scrutinized becomes understandable given a definition of aberrant psychology or pathology. So we think, oh, if we only understand pathology accurately enough, we will be under, able to understand the series of seemingly random criminal events. Do you think that's true? Um, I think that the, the, uh, the event is written in terms of larger uh, cultural predispositions to know and not know. So one of the things that's interesting about this particular time period, of course, is that it also gives rise to Sherlock Holmes. And so when we think about Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes and the emergence of uh, that particular brand of detective story from earlier kinds of mysteries and criminal accounts. And I'm actually thinking of Dickens here, who wrote um, very, very powerful sort of mystery stories before Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, then, yes, we have a sense that modern culture needs to know uh, 
the very thing that it can't, seemingly can't know, like why these events occur. So there's a sort of a, a Mobius strip of cause and effect, and you can't think about these crimes without thinking about um, the you know the police departments and um, the legal systems and uh, the various institutions against which they're poised. So to get a little bit more specific, let's talk about the media. Uh, Though there are probably authentic Jack the Ripper letters, there was also a number of letters sent to the police by members of the press. The media wants um, sensationalistic uh, attention, and the crime serves that. And so it becomes a, um, the modus operandi becomes a a self-perpetuation that um, is nicely augmented by the serial murder itself. And so the notion that murder becomes serial is um, directly linked to the media that then both exposes and celebrates um, uh, the crimes as they occur. It also becomes a perfect example of the word itself that we tend to forget about, um, which is uh, the word new. Um, These were newspapers uh, and um, the nature of the serial crime involved um, a cycle of expectation and fulfillment. And uh, as everybody in London waits for the next crime, um, the papers deliberate, they report on the last one, they report on uh, law enforcement um, uh, activities, they speculate, then then another crime happens and the appetite for the news is momentarily satisfied and then the cycle uh, repeats itself. Besides the media, what are, what are some of the other factors at play here? It's very demonstrably an urban crime. It's very demonstrably a sexual crime. And it's very demonstrably a crime of mutilation as well as of murder. So that we have the act of murder taking on uh, additional sort of cultural significance by the way in which it's played out. It's not simply a killing, but it's a killing in a certain kind of way that then reverberates. Isn't it the case that this particular series of events has captivated our imagination precisely because of the failure to solve it? Once something is solved, once you identify the sniper in Maryland and the series of crimes comes to an end and you have an identity and an explanation um, and you have, if you will, the facts of the case, um, then the, the stranglehold on the imagination and the, um, uh, the, uh, the sensationalistic mechanism um, comes grinding to a halt. We, yeah. uh, we can all go to sleep more easily uh, that, that night. Um, but in this particular case, it, it, um, it's one of the great unsolved mysteries of um, Anglo-American history. That seems almost like a facile explanation, though. Does it run deeper than that? It's a dodge for a more powerful ongoing question uh, about um, pathological psychology. In other words, we're fascinated with a criminal other, and the degree to which the criminal other can't be known um, is an 
a, a problem of ongoing perplexity. We put our brains around it, we approach it, but then it recedes. And so the nature of um, the crime remaining unsolved is a perfect emblem for uh, a fascination for depravity that really is continually unimaginable. You know, like we have definitions of depravity. This is what it looks like. This is what he did. He did it to her. But then we need as a culture to imagine a depravity beyond the depravity um, that we've just had explained to us. And I think that's actually um, an indication of sort of a mass, uh, mass psychology, mass culture, uh, fascination with creating the appetites um, that it purports to uh, satiate, right? So there's this endless cycle of um, creating the appetite and satiating it. And I think that's one of the things that um, is just uh, running uh, right through the event. I do think with the Jack the Ripper case, um, the uh, the there's there's a there's a crucial point to be made about urbanization, um, the notion that um, life has be, been reordered um, in a dramatically different way in terms of the urban space, uh, the intensity of the forced familiarity and um, uh, forced estrangement of the city dwellers. And so suddenly we're packed in this urban environment, the late Victorian period, um, that uh, period at which um, the empire is celebrating its triumphs, the uh, state is celebrating uh, progress, um, industry is celebrating, and then it makes perfect sense in a way that there would be a kind of return of the repressed. Um, and this kind, of, this this kind of crime has an interesting um, sort of obviously uh, class uh, implications um, and uh, sort of focuses attentions on um, urban working poor as well as um, uh, the, the sexual deviants. Coleridge has a, a phrase somewhere um, where he talks about motiveless malignity, and I believe it's in the description of um, Rhyme in the Ancient Mariner where the mariner shoots the albatross, and it's uh, the, the notion that the fall um, comes uh, purely fortuitously, um, accidentally, uh, without premeditation or explanation. And it seems that the, um, the serial killer is the first um, great example of that. In other words, if criminality is somehow unleashed from any kind of rational framework, then it becomes um, a crime uh, not only that's first unknowable and inexplicable, but then repeated. And it, re it repeats over and over. It's a kind of multiplication, and I think that's fascinating. Um, the sense that it, it's, um, it becomes like a virus, um, like an infection, something that can spread, um, that's copycatted, that um, becomes an unimaginable evil that like a computer virus or something replicates. And it's our first example of that. And I think we, we, we do see that in our current cultural climate with um, uh, uh, crimes of so-called terrorism, um, which, which function, uh, have a certain kind of rhetorical analogy that they, they function as a catch-all term 
uh, for an unimaginable or inexplicable evil that we're afraid that will happen over and over again without restraint. Bradford Mudge is a professor of 18th and 19th century literature at the University of Colorado. He's the author of four books, the most recent being The Cambridge Companion to Erotic Literature. Hey, do you have a subject that fascinates you? And do you want to talk about it? Or maybe you've got an interesting story to tell. Perhaps you have a song or a fiction piece or a poem. Send us an email or fill out the contact form on the website and let us know about it. Up next... We journey to the 20th century to talk about serial killers as we now know them. Writer and researcher Alessandra Ragusen helps us try to decipher that phenomenon using what's known as monster theory. So a question that comes up a lot is, why do serial killers kill? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of cultural explanations. Uh, you know, they're crazy bedwetters that tortured their pets when they were younger. They're misfit loners living out their repressed sexual fantasies. Or they're monsters that just have to kill. You know, none of these th theories really explain the why of the matter, and most of them don't even really hold up statistically anymore. Hmm. I mean, that's less than satisfying. What about the killers themselves? Is there anything that they've said that we can learn from? Well, unfortunately, you're not going to get much better answers there either. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, said his dog told him to kill. Uh, right before his execution, Ted Bundy blamed a pornography addiction for his crimes. And perhaps most chillingly, there's Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer. Once caught, police interviewers, having grown tired of his constant victim blaming and obfuscations, flat out asked him why he did it. Why did he murder all those women? And after a long pause, he simply said, I just needed to kill. Maybe it's some kind of psychosis or a, a chemical imbalance or faulty wiring in the brain. The truth is, we just don't know. We don't know why these kinds of crimes happen or why people commit them. Given that there aren't great answers here, maybe the why do they kill is the wrong question. Right. Let's look at some numbers here. Uh, the number of serial killer deaths from the years 1990 to 2000 is somewhere in the neighborhood of 650 to 700, depending on whose statistics you use. Now, that number's seems high by itself, but the number of violent deaths attributable to, say, domestic violence is 1,000 to 1,500 per year. Um, so somewhere around 10 to 15,000 murders in the same period. Given that there are more pressing issues, um, bigger social factors, what's driving our interest in these crimes? The question maybe should be, why do we care about serial killers so much at all? Yeah, 
You know, I think it's worth looking at the role of the media again. Just like with Jack the Ripper, it's fair to say that there's a tone here that skirts the line between reporting the facts of these crimes and sensationalizing them for something that feels, you know, more like entertainment or even more like exploitation. I think what happens is kind of an arms race. Each incident comes complete with a gruesome story, gory details, and a monster at the center. Publicity of these events drives viewership or readership up. We rinse and repeat. And it leads to kind of an escalating cycle. There's even an argument to be made that media interest in these crimes correlates with the rise in the crimes themselves. And we'll talk about that a little later. Yeah. And of course, this, you know, this all bleeds into popular culture as well. And you, you've got movies like Manhunter, which in and of itself is an adaptation of a Thomas Harris book, Red Dragon. And then he wrote the book Silence of the Lambs, and that was made into a movie. And, you know, the serial killer kind of gets burnished in the public imagination as a really an almost mythic anti-hero. And it's interesting. I heard a story about a serial killer that I unfortunately lost the name of. Take notes, kids. Um, <laughs> But to paraphrase it, he says that when he heard guards coming around his cell after being caught, he would put on classical music and stare blankly and intently at the guards to kind of give a serial killer persona. But when they would pass by, he would just go back to being his normal self. And that kind of leads to a chicken and egg scenario. Which came first, the criminal or the portrayal of the criminal? I mean, these are people that consume media about serial killers too, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And of course, you know, this really helps explain the prominence of, of serial killers in the pop culture landscape, but that doesn't really get to the heart of why our interest in these crimes is so high. So quick, to the science mobile. Yep, that's right. Time for theory and facts. Oh, who's that? Oh, that's Alessandra Raguson. She's a writer and researcher and good friend of the show. So there's this guy, Jeffrey Cohen, came up with a school of literary criticism called Monster Theory. He takes a look at what monsters in literature, pop culture, and history represent to different societies and cultures. So he's looking into the why and the what behind our love of monsters? Exactly. A few of his main points are that monsters represent cultural anxieties, that they police the borders of what is possible, and that fearing monsters actually represents a kind of desire. So what about serial killers then? People have been labeling serial killers as monsters since forever. Well, one of the best examples to look at here is Ted Bundy and the eventfulness of the 1970s. Oh, right. Good old Ted Bundy. I'm sure everyone listening is, is probably pretty familiar with Ted Bundy, but let's throw out a refresher just in case, right? Ted Bundy is one of the more famous serial killers in American history. He confessed to murdering 30 women, but there are probably many more. According to Wikipedia, he's, quote, an American serial killer, kidnapper, rapist, burglar, and necrophile, unquote, which may give you some idea of just what kind of sadist he really was. However, outside of his crimes, one of the, the main things that people mention when they talk about Ted Bundy is how handsome and charismatic he was. The idea was that he would almost use this to his advantage as a way to lure women to him in order to kill them. In a way, he's almost the platonic ideal of serial killers. He was described as good-looking, highly intelligent, organized, and extremely manipulative. He was very mobile as well, which conjures up movie-ready images of the killer on the road, prowling America's highways at night, searching for his next victim. And he left a trail of victims behind him in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, and Florida. Most of all, though, he was, as the famous crime writer Ann Rule said, quote, 
a sadistic sociopath who took pleasure from another human's pain and the control he had over his victims to the point of death and even after, unquote. But we should say that the 70s as a whole were kind of a crazy dark time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, to start with, the Vietnam War didn't actually end until 1975, and news from there had gotten pretty dire, with incidents like the My Lai Massacre making headlines. And at home, protests around the war became more intense, eventually culminating in the Kent State shootings. And right after the war ended, the Khmer Rouge took control of the Cambodian government, leading to the genocide in that country, with 1.5 to 3 million citizens being killed. You had the Yom Kippur War in the Middle East, Europe had a flare-up of uh, left-wing violence, actually, linked to social movements such as the Bader-Meinhof Gang, the Red Brigades, and the 1st of October group. In Latin America, there were the communist revolutionary groups like FARC and the Shining Path and others who were involved in bloody conflicts with their respective right-wing governments. The drug war began ramping up in earnest around then, too, so violent figures like Pablo Escobar became household names. And terrorism, kind of the way we define it today, really got underway with multiple plane hijackings, Carlos the Jackal, the Achille Loro hijackings and death, and of course, the Munich Olympics massacre. And, you know, back here in the States, you see social movements that started in the 60s change and warp into terrorist organizations like the Weather Underground and into cults like Jim Jones and the People's Temple and of course, Charles Manson and his family. And really, I feel like we're just kind of scratching the surface of, of the kind of rending social and cultural change that was happening all over the world during that decade. These are all examples of huge cultural and global anxieties that were happening during the 70s. So then what does Ted Bundy have to do with all this? If you ask me, he acted as a sort of distracting force for the American people. With all this highly visible violence going on at home and around the world, the sensationalization of Bundy helped people find a weird sort of comfort in bringing the attention back home to the States. In a time before the 24-hour news cycle and before viral videos, he became a figurehead for people to rally around. Now that's a really interesting thought, uh, because one of the things that we discovered when doing research was that before 1960, there were only about a dozen serial killers on record. And that jumped up to 19 in just the 1960s alone. But in the 70s, there were 119 different serial killers and 200 in the 1980s. And while there are a lot of things that can account for that, such as advances in criminology and the fact that the word serial killer was even coined until 1974, the fact that the media was so keen to sensationalize these kind of murders had to play a part. Of course, Bundy became a part of the explosion of televised violence. There's also a huge rise in female politicians around the world and more and more women entering the workforce and taking on way less traditional roles. It was a time when second wave feminism really hit the mainstream. There was uh, the big push for the Equal Rights Amendment, the whole battle of the sexist thing with Billie Jean King, and a whole lot of other protests and movements that got a lot of visibility. He was the embodiment of the anxieties surrounding feminism in society. Bundy also had strange relationships with the women in his life. He was raised believing that his mother was his sister and his grandparents were his parents. His grandfather was, so we're told, extremely violent towards his grandmother, and this is what Bundy witnessed when he was growing up. I don't think we can necessarily say that Bundy killed women to make a statement against feminism. But someone who values and respects women and their struggle in society certainly doesn't treat them that way. 
Another concern about Bundy, among many, obviously, is that he was just one person doing this on his own. We see with a lot of serial killers that they are proud of what they're able to accomplish on their own. More importantly, though, is that this idea leads us into Cohen's second point, that monsters police the border of what's possible. So this is more than just us looking at them as extreme examples of what people are capable of, right? Yeah. It's also about us quote-unquote normal folk not only realizing what humans are capable of, but also allowing us a space to play out or imagine things that we would never do but still entertain ideas of. Stephen King once wrote that the stranger makes us nervous, but we love to try on his face in secret. And I think that really speaks to that notion of being repulsed by what these people do, but also kind of wanting to be those people too. Yeah, for sure. There's a danger to them that's really easily romanticized as well. Cohen has a great quote when he's talking about monsters showing us the borderlines of possibility. He says that in society, quote, curiosity is more often punished than regarded, that one is better off safely contained within one's own domestic sphere than abroad, away from the watchful eyes of the state. This is generally what ruling morality and government tells us, but this is the line that serial killers constantly cross. Our friend Bundy was wildly depraved and unapologetic about it. He raped, kidnapped, duped, murdered, and had sex with the bodies of his victims even as they decomposed over weeks and weeks. Looking through centuries of morality and societal standards, these things are generally frowned upon. At least they're frowned upon when committed by the general population. Yeah, Bundy and others kind of represent or even tap into the deepest, darkest recesses of human psychology and morality, like H.H. Holmes, Albert Fish, or Charles Starkweather before him. The reasons for these crimes really aren't discernible, as we were talking about, so this leaves them open to multiple points of interpretation, and many of these having to do with your own individual point of view. And this brings us to the final point, that fear of the serial killer actually represents a kind of desire. Which ties into that whole policing of possibility thing we just discussed. Yes. Except here we see not only the fantasizing and fetishizing, but also the envy and attraction. It kind of begs the question, though. I mean, what do we have to be envious of when it comes to serial killers? Well, let's look at another important social trend of the 70s. In the 60s, we see a movement for greater community and communal living, a more hive-minded-like way to live. In the 70s, though, things started to shift to a more individualistic mindset. Out of this springs a sexual revolution. People are learning to love in whatever way they feel comfortable, societal expectations and norms are shifting and evolving, and we eventually get a boom in the porn industry. But we'll get to that more in a minute. Getting back to the idea of individuality, serial killers have these very rogue personalities, which make them seem like the ultimate individual. They clearly don't operate within the law, and they live by their own rules. And that is so enticing to most people, especially us individually-minded Americans. It's the same reason why we've been so obsessed with cowboys in the Old West. Not only did Bundy murder all these women, he also routinely stole cars, TVs, stereos, and escaped from jail not once, but twice. What a guy. His story is filled with what seems like classic serial killer tropes. Everything that makes for a good story with all kinds of exciting adventure. In a way, he's almost a dark mirror image of the American outlaw hero. And that image of the handsome loner not bound by society's rules, man, is one that crops up in pop culture as well. There's songs like The Doors' Killer on the Road and 
Jane's addictions, Ted just admit it, which of course is about our Mr. Bundy. And there are tons of movies that explore this theme from Terrence Malick's Badlands in the 1970s and continuing on into the 90s with Natural Born Killers in California. Uh, California? Yeah, I didn't remember that one either. Uh, Brad Pitt. Oh, California with a K. With a K. Right. Yeah. Uh, Clever. Uh, These kind of, these things kind of romanticize the idea of being out on the open road and not bound by things like money or morality. And that's kind of something we all want. We both envy the freedom of the serial killer and are repulsed by it at the same time. What's strange is that frequently we see this freedom and are envious of it, but were these were these guys truly free? Yeah, that's true. Can anyone who compulsively needs to rape and murder be considered free? Exactly. Back to the sexual revolution bit to tie this up. Right before his execution, Bundy met with Focus on the Family founder, James Dobson, and confessed that he committed these murders because from an early age his mind was poisoned by pornography. Anytime Bundy confessed to a murder, though, he always made sure to blame it on someone or something else. The sexual revolution and influx in pornography was such an easy out, and a way for religious anxieties to be quelled, or at least justified. Cohen makes one final point, that the monster always gets away. While Bundy was executed, he never took full responsibility for what happened. And in a sense, Bundy escaped. So I guess the last thing to really talk about is what happened? Uh, Because it seems like this is not a subject that really hits the news anymore. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there is a lot of interest in true crime now. And and, and certainly there's a healthy question mark amount of material out there to consume if you want. And some of it really is quite good. Right. I mean, you have shows like CSI and Hannibal that explore these ideas. And true crime has most definitely seen a resurgence in recent years, especially among us podcasting folks. But you're right, news about these incidents seem to have slowed down to a crawl. And it's not because there aren't serial killers anymore. There are an an estimated 25 to 50 serial killers right now on the loose. We just don't hear about them. This is probably going to sound really cliche, but 9-11 is really the event that kind of changes everything. Uh, The BTK killer was caught after that, but he almost felt like a a leftover, like a vestige of an earlier era. Our fears now seem to be less nebulous. Instead of the creeping dread of communism, random violence is much more sudden and explosive. No longer are we as concerned with a meticulous patient hunter waiting for the right moment to strike. Now, the violence is much more random and can happen at any time. And it's also worth pointing out that the overall rate of violent crime has dropped a lot in the last two decades. Yeah, that's true. If there's a theme here, it's the media role, really, in these crimes. While it's pretty inflammatory to say there's any kind of causation, Certainly, there is a strong correlation here. There's a pattern of crimes occurring and media interest in the crimes rising and falling at the same time. The more there's a spotlight on these killers, uh, the more killers there are. And the inverse, of course, is true as well, because now the spotlight is on terrorism, random shootings, and that kind of sudden violence, and that's what's dominating the narrative. It's important to note that statistically, you are far more likely to choke on food, drown in the bath, get eaten by a shark, and so on. Right. Uh, in other words, the, the level of fear that we feel stays the same. It's just the target of that fear has shifted. Finally, just to, just to close it out here, uh, let's not leave out that these are really fascinating crimes. I mean, 
Jeffrey Dahmer was trying to make a zombie sex slave. Uh, the Zodiac Killer sent encrypted notes to the police and press, and they dared them to catch him. I mean, that's so cinematic, right? These are really dramatic elements to these crimes. Yeah, it's almost like a Sherlock Holmes villain or something you'd see in a movie. Right, um, exactly. They also tend to run right into our fascination with abnormal psychiatry. There may be no satisfying reason why these people kill, but speculating about it is actually kind of fun. Certainly, it's hugely entertaining. And, you know, it, at the end of the day, I think that's okay. It, it may even be a little bit helpful, I think, to cope with the horrors of the world, you know, by shining a light on them. For the Star Trek alien to feed on us, we need something kind of crazy that really grabs our attention. We care about this stuff because it hits something in our brains that just fascinates us. It just matters. Today's episode was written by Ryan Connell, Alessandra Ragusin, and me. It was edited and produced by me. You can see more of Ryan's work and follow him on his journey at theholyapostate.com, and you can check out more of Alessandra's work at greenworldwriting.com. And that's it for today. I'll see you again in two weeks, for real this time. Okay, welcome back to the <laughs> substratum. <laughs> what you just heard was about Jack the Ripper. <laughs> uh. <laughs> now we're going to play some, some oldies but goodies from the 1970s. Yeah, always the 1970s. Time for substratum after dark. Substratum after dark. <laughs> Caller, what's your question? <laughs> Oh, we need callers. Ted from Salt Lake says that he <laughs> just loves murdering and mutilating female bodies. Oh, tell us about that, Ted. That sounds really interesting. <laughs> oh, Ted. Just admit it. It's our favorite caller. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>